For our second message today, we have a sermon from Mr. Curtis Whiteley entitled, Following God to a New Land. Mr. Whiteley. Thank you, Reggie. Good afternoon. Good to see everyone here, as it always is on a beautiful Sabbath day, one week away from, a little bit more than one week away from Pentecost to our 50th day. And so, as he just mentioned, the title of this message today is Following God to a New Land. And so, we're going to get into a story that most of us are probably pretty familiar with in Genesis, the 12th chapter, about an individual by the name of Abraham. So let's go ahead and let's just turn there real quick. And it's not a new story. It's a story that we've heard many times. It's a story that's referred to in the Bible several times. And we're very accustomed to thinking about God, or not God, but Abraham in terms of his faith. And that is true. We see a great example of Abraham's faith. But a big thing that the story of Abraham shows us is God's faithfulness. So let's go to Genesis, the 12th chapter. We're going to pick it up in verse 1. Verse 1 of chapter 12 says, The Lord said, or had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples of, on earth will be blessing or be blessed through you. And we've seen that passage of Scripture. But to start out, I just wanted to give us some background information about Abraham. And just to let you know, I'm going to refer to Abraham, we know his name is Abram in the early chapters of Genesis. Uh, we know that his name is eventually changed by God to Genesis, or in Genesis the 17th chapter to Abraham. But just for simplicity, I'm just going to refer to him as Abraham throughout this entire message. But just a few facts about Abraham. Uh, nearly a fourth of the book of Genesis is devoted to this individual. So quite a bit of Genesis. And Genesis is a 50 chapter book in our Bible. 40 Old Testament references to him, 75 New Testament references to him. In fact, the argument, you could say the thesis of the New Testament or the view of Abraham, according to the Christian, is that Abraham, that we as Christians, we are heirs to Abraham, to those promises given to him through our Savior, Jesus Christ. The faith chapter in Hebrews, the 11th chapter, is devoted to Abraham more than any other individual in the faith chapter of Hebrews, the 11th chapter. And, although this, this is just more for your own information, not so much important, there's 188 reference to him in the book of Quran, or the, 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 what Muslims call their holy book. And we know that Abraham is claimed by Christianity, by Judaism, as well as by Islam. But what we just read in Genesis, the 12th chapter, verses 1 through 3, is what I like to refer to as the call of Abraham. And it's a passage, as I mentioned, that we're all very familiar with. But this call, this passage implies several things. And this includes what he, what Abraham, would have to do or give up in order to heed God's instruction. You see, there was something Abraham had to do. And because he did it, and he continued to do these difficult things, 
he's been known as Father Abraham, the, the man of faith that we know him as. This includes giving up or leaving land, leaving family, and, as the passage says, his father's household. So we're going to kind of look at some of the background and some of the things that he would have given up. And I'm going to talk a lot about history or historical cultural customs because I think that helps us understanding exactly what Abraham gave up. Land was something that was very important. It was a very important element in the ancient world. And today, you could still say land's important. You own land and you give it maybe to your kids and it has valuable or it is valuable. But land was probably a little bit more important in the ancient world because oftentimes wealth or power or status was directly tied to one's land. People's livelihood for herdsmen or political power and authority was often wrapped up in land. And this was especially the case for those who were in what was known as the aristocratic class in ancient societies. In those societies, their political power was often tied or rested in the hands of the rich land-owning aristocratic class. And those were the ones, even a little bit later, we see like in Roman times, they were the ones that got to have say-so, like when it came to making laws and things like that. A person's very identity in the ancient world oftentimes was tied to land. The land that they were from, the land that they owned, and so was even the religion to an extent. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But land was something very important. But we have to ask the question, because there's a little bit of confusion and argument, I guess you would say, what land was Abraham asked to leave? What land did Abraham have to leave in order to heed God's call? Let's go to the 8th verse in Genesis 12. And let's just read that. The very end of that first section, we read, And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Now, where it's talking about is that he left a place called Haran. Haran is just north of the land of Canaan. And Genesis 12 verse 8 makes it seem like Abraham received this call was when he was in that place, and basically northern Canaan. Northern Canaan. But what we know is, is that Abraham was not from Canaan. He was not from Haran. In Genesis the 12th chapter, it seems like Abraham's homeland was Haran, just north of Canaan. But we know from other passages that wasn't the case, such as Genesis the 15th chapter, verse 7, as well as Acts 7 through 3, all tell us that the initial call that we just read in Genesis came when he was in his native land of Ur, also known as Ur of the Chaldeans, before he migrated to Haran with his family, without his household, where he would inherit. Now, we'll get into in a few minutes well, exactly who was he with when he left Ur. Many translations even read the first verse of Genesis, the 12th chapter, as had said. God had said, because we see... As the story goes on, God seemed to have initially called Abraham when he was actually in Ur, not Haran. Not Haran. So let's just talk a little bit about Ur, Abraham's native land. Genesis, the 11th chapter, verse 28. Let's go there real quick. We're going to look at a couple passages. 
in Genesis 11, verse 28, he says, And Haran, or Haran, died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. You switch over to verse 31, it says, And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out and with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt, them, dwelt there. And then in Acts 15, 7 we read, And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Now Mesopotamia is what the Greeks called the land between the rivers. And that was in that land, like Samaria is kind of the area where Ur was, where it's kind of like modern day Baghdad today. When he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. So piecing those together, those different passages, kind of gives us a better picture of exactly where Abraham was when he was called by God. Now you might say, well, that's not really that big of a deal. It just seems something a little bit minute. But if you think about it, it, it if, you, if we look at the history, we'll look at some of the background of where he left, it actually kind of makes his call a little bit more significant. Ur, where Abraham was from, traditionally has been seen as a city-state of Samaria. Samaria was one of those early, I don't know if you would call it an empire or a kingdom, I don't exactly know how historians classify it, but it's an early civilization in the area between the two rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates, what they call Mesopotamia. South Mesopotamia, about 186 miles southeast of what's modern-day Baghdad in Iraq. They had discoveries first in 1854 of this place called Ur. They excavated it years later in the early 1920s to the 1930s. And what they found was, it's pretty interesting, they found elaborate wealth. They saw that it was a place that must have a lot of you know, commercial trade and things like that. I mean, it was a fertile crescent. That's what they call that area, right? They call it that because of those rivers that give a lot of nice, plush farming land. This is, again, as I already mentioned, where we get the word Mesopotamia, which is what the Greeks called that land. Mesopotamia is the land between the two rivers. They also found evidence for skilled craftsmen. They found evidence of advanced technology and science, like they possessed a temple complex, what we call or historians call a ziggurat. And that's an indication of engineering, science, technology, to be able to create those things. And a ziggurat, just to let you know, was like an early temple and usually would have steps. Uh, and at the top is where the god was, that they were worshiping were supposed to reside. And they would, there's, I mean, there's so many different uh, you know, things written on this, but there, there's so many different probably practices and how they did this, but they would put you know, bounty up there to try to please the God. Maybe they'd put like a nice bed to try to beckon the God to come and sleep and probably leave goodies that would rot because they would never be eaten because they weren't real gods, obviously. But that's what they found. And so what that means is, and as Howard F. Voss, who wrote an article called Genesis and Archaeology, he says, regardless of when Abraham left Ur, he turned his back on a great metropolis setting out by faith for a land about which he knew little or nothing and which could probably offer him little from a standpoint of material benefits. So if this is true, and this was Abraham's native land, he left 
a place that he just happened to be from that really was kind of a place of opportunity that probably had, you know, a lot of things that he could do there for a land that he had no idea about. So Abraham is not only asked to leave land, but he's asked to leave relatives and his father's house. And this is a little bit strange because we're going to see this. Because some translations use the term kinship or kindred. Now, if we know anything from the Bible, people don't just have a couple relatives. They have several. They have several brothers and sisters, typically. They have several, you know, extended family. It, it's not, the, the family unit's probably a little bit smaller in our day than it was back in these ancient times. What we have to be clear about, because the scriptures clearly tell us, is that it appears that Abraham did leave Ur with family. Genesis 11 makes it clear that his father Terah, his brother Haran died in Ur, but his father Terah took him, Abraham, his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot with him, and they left for, uh, they accompanied Abraham on forsaking their native land. But nevertheless, as we know, people in these days, as I mentioned, they have large extended families where their land was almost synonymous with their name. So everything they had was tied to that land. And in our modern world, packing up and leaving, as you know, it's not a huge deal. It's tough. I mean, I'm sure I'm not much of a, a migrant person myself. I've lived in Oklahoma my entire life. But it, it probably is a tough thing. You, it's, it's kind of the unknown. But much more probably in this day and age. Now, let's just think about this. Whoever Abraham left with, you know, obviously it was his father, his nephew, his wife. But he, as the scriptures tells us, he left some family. He left a kinship group. And if we think about that, our family, and maybe it's, you know, he still has his father. We don't know where his mother is. She's not mentioned. We don't know where his other family is. Our kinship groups, our relatives, the people that we're close with, they provide a natural source of security for us and protection. And sometimes being a foreigner could be a very dangerous thing in a land that you really don't have family and nobody knows who you are. Or you don't have any connection to that land. You don't have any claim to that land. And if you don't want to believe that, you could probably just go ask the Israelites to a little bit later who found themselves in Egypt and how hostile it could be living in a land that wasn't your own. And I think a lot of us can understand this. You know, family is important. Family is a, 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 a thing that is a pattern in which how God operates. And we see that. We see that pattern in the Bible. We see as human beings, we create families. We get married. We have children. They have children. We create family. And for many of us, our families are a safe haven and a place of refuge. Our family members are the ones who we believe will have our back no matter what. And the ones that we that will love us no matter what. And living in America, I know that the idea of the family unit sometimes seems to be diminishing a little bit uh, in compared to maybe what it once was, but I still think that by and large this is still the case. And so whatever family Abraham was leaving, it was something that was a sacrifice. We know that it was a sacrifice. He might have still had his nephew, his father, but it was a sacrifice what he was leaving. He was also, by leaving his family, his native land where he was, where they knew the descendants, or not the descendants, but the family tree of Abraham, he was leaving his identification. 
as I already mentioned, people were identified in the ancient world as a member of their father's household. They would often also be identified by where they came from. And a great example of this, we see it all throughout the Bible. We see per- people being identified as people or persons by tribe, clan, or household that they come from. We see this with Paul of Tarsus. We see Elijah the Tishbite. We see Simon the Cyrene, you know, the man that helped Jesus take the cross whenever Jesus was being led be crucified. People were identified by tribe, by their location. Sometimes they were identified by their parent, you know, so-and-so, the son of, you know, whoever. So this was an important identification that Abraham was giving up. Going to a foreign land where nobody would know that, oh, yeah, Abraham, son of Terah. Well, no one would know that, and that was risky. John Walton, who was an ancient Near Eastern and Old Testament scholar, identifies this statement, that statement that we just read in Genesis, the 12th chapter, verse 1, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house, in Genesis 12, 1, to be a reference to Abraham's inheritance. That he essentially was giving up the inheritance that he probably would have had in the land of Ur, meaning that leaving father's household would imply that he's giving up his rights, to physical land and material possessions one might inherit from his father's household. And also giving up the rights to be the one that the family name was shifted to when his father passed away as head of the household. Now as I already mentioned, it could also imply that, and we know this, this is something that's in the biblical narrative, Abraham wasn't always a believer of the one and true God that we know of as the universe, Yahweh or the Lord Almighty, as the Hebrew Bible you know, first reveals him. But rather, he came from a family living in Ur of the Chaldeans. There's no monotheism there. There's no belief in one God, per se, there. He was from a family that was a polyistic religious belief. And Abraham, by leaving Ur, he's giving that up. Joshua, the 24th chapter. Let's go there real quick. And I think Brian will have it up on the screen. I think I gave it to him. Joshua, the 24th chapter, verse 2, says this. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. The other side of the river being that place that they call Ur, you know, the land between two rivers, Mesopotamia. Picking on down to verse 14 of the same chapter in Joshua. Now therefore, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river, and in Egypt, serve the Lord. Now, what's interesting about this is that what we know from the ancient world that Deities were often associated with land and people groups. Again, people were associated with land, and so were their deities that they worshipped were associated with land. They were stationary, typically, meaning that they didn't move around. Now, we do have examples in the Bible where you could have an idol and you could carry it around with you and things like that. But oftentimes, deities were stationary and they were tied to a specific place, city, or town. And so people, they would develop these things called patron gods, like, you know, the main god of your city or your town or things like that. They would believe in many different gods. It's not that they would deny other gods, but their main focus would be their patron god, the god 
that was specific to their location. And so these gods, these patron gods, they would be geographically bound. Okay? They would have a jurisdiction or a special interest in that particular people group that's living in that town or that city or that geographical uh, location. And they would also have a specialty. And what I mean by that, some sort of special power that they were over. And we've probably seen this in history and the things that we read. And we see that a lot of times the pagan gods that the Old Testament's referring to, that they have some sort of, you know, they're associated with the sun or the moon or the sea. We know that in the Greek pantheon, things like, you know, Poseidon's example. He's the god of the sea, god of storm, things like that. We see that Athena would become the, the goddess of wisdom and she was the patron god of Athens. And so we see that people would develop these patron gods. And so you couldn't just get up and move without kind of giving up that belief or that devotion to that god. You might still be able to believe in them, but it was so tied to the geographical spot that you were in. We also see that there would be ziggurats or monuments. Ziggurats were early t uh, temples. Uh, like way back in the ancient Near Eastern period, like, uh, like Samaria and things like that. And then civilization developed more sophisticated type temples and things like that, or uh, they, were, they were different. Uh, and so we do see that oftentimes these ziggurats, ziggurats they are low, you know, they're, they're not, they're stationary, they're permanent, they're not being moved. Uh, and we see this, you know, and even in the, the New Testament we see, uh, you know, a, a, a monument to the princess, Di not princess, excuse me, sorry Matthew, okay, uh, the goddess Diana, and, or Artemis, as I think that she goes by both names, depending upon what area you're talking about, but there was some sort of statue or a monument to her, and she was the goddess there in Ephesus that they believed in. So walking away from this would include walking away from familiar gods. And we know how comfortable religion is to people and how important. I mean, people that believe in false religion, still, that's something that is probably hard for them to give up. They believe in it. They believe in it. They believe in the traditions. They believe in the stories. And so giving that up is not just so easy. It's easy for us to say, well, why don't you give up, you know, worshiping that false god? Well, they don't believe it's a false god. And so he's taking a leap by leaving because also, not only does it imply leaving household, leaving land, it also implies leaving the familiar religion that he might have had. And also, the familiar gods and goddesses Abraham may have grown up being accustomed to trust and believe in. And so I think that there's a possible illustration in this with ourselves. You know, we think about our calling. We think about the time that God started calling us. And maybe we didn't, you know, leave a different religion. We didn't leave land. We didn't leave our family. But we probably left a lot of things that we were familiar with just because it wasn't compatible with our Christian walk. And so I think there's a lot of things that we can see in parallel to Abraham to our lives. Now, he was asked to give these things up, but he was also told what he was going to receive. And we know as the story goes along, he didn't actually receive all those things, but he's still sleeping right now, awaiting some of those things that God told him he was going to have, starting in Genesis, the 12th chapter. The text tells us that Abraham would see, receive a new land. But the land is not 
immediately identified. We know the story. He's told to leave his homeland. He starts wandering around this land. And God reveals to him that someday I'm going to give you and your descendants that land. Acts the 7th chapter verse 4. Speaking of Abraham leaving Ur. God removed from him there into this land in which you are now living. And he's talking to. We're talking about now living. The sermon about Abraham and Acts. They're living in Palestine. Or what's the promised land. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it. Not even a foot's length. But promised to give it to him as a possession. And to his offspring after him. Though he had no child. And that's another thing. So God tells him leave your family. Leave your, your, your land that you're accustomed to growing up in. And come to this land. And I'm going to give you all these descendants. Now, the text tells us that he's going to get these descendants, but considering his age and the fact that his wife was barren, this may have been something that was just a little bit hard to swallow, a little bit difficult to really believe. And we see that he, it was difficult for him to believe because in the story, he starts trying to assume how God's going to do it. And he has a child with, you know, with, with Hagar and Ishmael and all of that. But the age of Abraham, it's interesting, he's 75 years of age. Now Genesis 11, the chapter before Genesis 12, we know that 75 years is not very much for early chapters of Genesis, right? When we talk about Methuselah, that's 969 years old or something around there. But starting in Genesis, the 11th chapter, the genealogies presents us where people are starting to get, their lives are starting to get shorter and shorter and shorter. They're not living 500, 600, 700, 800 years anymore. And so 75 years old, at this point in Genesis 11, you could probably say that Abraham was older. Because 75 years of age during this period, according to the way the genealogy started shrinking down lifespans, that he was in his upper age. In fact, Bob Deffenbaugh, who's a Christian writer, commentary, um, I like to write his, uh, read his stuff, and was reading a little article commentary he wrote on this and he, he put an interesting quote he said that Abraham would have been on social security for 10 years in our time the midlife crisis would have been over and instead of thinking about new land most of us would have been thinking in terms of a rocking chair and a rest home so we have Abraham that's at this age getting these promises and still believing and told that he was going to be blessed I'm going to give you a new land. I'm going to give you descendants. And I'm going to bless you. And you're going to have descendants that you can't even count. Have we considered what Abraham give, gave up considering the circumstances? I mean, you have an individual right here that was following God to a new land that he did not know about. Hebrews, the 11th chapter, verses 8 through 10 says this, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to, a pl to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country. That land that the descendants of Abraham would get, that would be their land. He was a foreigner when he was in it. He wasn't an inheritor yet. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob the heirs with him in the same promise. For he waited for the city 
which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And it's interesting because you think about the old times, right? And I'm talking ancient times, not even that long ago. It, this would still probably be the case. But when God told him that in the land of Ur, it's not like he'd just go to Google and say, hmm, what's the land of Canaan? What's Haran? You know, what is that? There wasn't a chamber of commerce, you know, you know unknown land to the east of I mean, He couldn't do that. It was complete faith. Complete faith. To do so, to do and follow God's heed, he had to leave the comfortable life, the familiar, the feeling of protection and security. What about our calling? The Bible tells us that we are a part of this plan that's connected to Abraham. Galatians, the third chapter, verse 26, we see Paul tells us, For you are all sons of God, through faith in Christ Jesus, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so we see that we have a part in this inheritance. That Abraham, we know that Abraham's physical descendants were the Israelites, and they became a great nation, and they still have a big part in God's plan, and we can still look at prophecies that Israel is a part of that haven't been fulfilled, but God did not intend to just stop with the physical descendants of Abraham. We know that he had an even bigger plan than the physical, and that one of his descendants, that one specific descendant of Abraham, would bring about the possibility for redemption to the entire world, for inheritance for the entire world, for all that call upon his name and receive him and his sacrifice and are baptized in his name, and that is, of course, Jesus Christ. Through Christ, we have been made heirs of Abraham. But just thinking back to our initial calling from God, and some of us may be, Able to identify with Abraham's story in, in, in different ways. We all have our own story. We all have the you know, different things that we struggled with. As we just read what Abraham had to leave, we might ask ourselves what aspects may have been similar for me and you. I'll tell you on a personal level, I grew up in this church. I grew up in the Christian faith. I grew up in Oklahoma. It's in the middle of America. But Christianity wasn't something that was, you know, foreign to me. It was very common. But something I can identify with Abraham a little bit. He was probably better at, at you know, the faith thing than I am. Uh, was the promises. And specifically, not that I didn't believe him, but it was just... It, I couldn't believe, and, and you might have had this similar experience before, that when I really... Honed in, and it wasn't just like cliche things that people said. You know, Jesus saved, Jesus died for you, but it was, it was an epiphany of this reality of the things that took place, and the fact that there's a God that created everything out there, every living organism, everything you see. He is the source of it. Wants a relationship with me, and with you, and wants us at His table in His kingdom. That is a sobering thing. I mean, not, not that it's hard to believe, but it's, 
it's humbling, and it's like, it's just one of those epiphany things when you realize that this is what we're dealing with. That there's this overall God of the universe that has this marvelous plan for all of us. And there's maybe some other aspects, you know, that are more specific to Abraham that you could identify with, you know. Living out a step with the world. Abraham definitely was probably living out a step. He was in a new land, wasn't probably familiar with all of their customs. Didn't have his family name, you know, didn't have, you know, when he was maybe 10 or 15 years old, he might have, you know, the plan might have been that he was a part of a specific family that he would have gotten a lot of land in Ur of the Chaldeans, and that land was probably pretty valuable, especially considering the metropolis that it was. And so, maybe it's jobs or family or friends. Now, we know that God does not require us to leave our jobs, to leave our family, to leave our friends when we follow after him, when he calls us out on our journey to our new land. But, inevitably, sometimes these things can be incompatible with our new Christian walk. And we might have to eliminate or limit the amount of exposure that we have, unfortunately, in things. Maybe some family members or some friends. God doesn't want us to shun people. That's not what he wants. But sometimes, inevitably, that might have had to happen with some people in certain circumstances. And so, to conclude this, well, I say conclude, I, I was just... I kind of attached this to the end of my message here. Let's go to Luke, the 18th chapter, because I kind of found something. I kind of thought about something. You see that Abraham was asked to do something that was difficult. And he succeeded. And he wasn't perfect at it. We know the story that he wasn't perfect. But he succeeded in believing and carrying out God's will for what he wanted Abraham to do. But there's a story in Luke, the 18th chapter, and we've all read it before. I've preached on it before. The story of the rich young ruler. And we're just going to read this real quick. Because I think that there's some interesting, it's an interesting, like, you know, contrast to the story of Abraham. Because you have Abraham being asked to do something by God, and he, he does it. And then you have the story of this young rich ruler, and he, he struggled. He struggled at doing what Jesus asked him to do. But... In verse 18 of Luke 18th chapter, he says, Jesus, now a certain, this is Jesus that's going to be in this story, obviously. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he said, All these things... I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he became sorrowful, very sorrowful, he said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Who then can be saved? But he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And so this, you know, we, we call it the rich young ruler. That's kind of what people have, you know, 
associated the story with, this rich young man, the ruler, comes to Jesus and he asks them the question for the ages, right? What must be done for a person to enter or inherit eternal life? It's an age-old question. In fact, I've heard it the other way, which isn't as good in my opinion, but people will come and it's like the bare minimum people, like, do I have to do that to be saved? They're trying to figure out what they have to do and what they don't have to do in order to be saved. And of course, we know that's not a good attitude. Uh, it's not the attitude that you want to have. Uh, you don't want to be, you know, Christian, the Christian faith is not a faith that, you know, where you're looking for shortcuts. Uh, our perfect selves have enough shortcomings of, the, of, the, of, the, of their own. But there is no doubt that this question was probably inspired by Jesus himself. You know, he's going around, he's preaching, he's teaching about the kingdom of God, inheriting eternal life. And so, to answer this question, that this man came and asked Jesus, Jesus mentions several of the commandments. Interesting, he says adultery, talks about murder, don't steal, lie or bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And with all these commandments that Jesus listed, the man in confidence probably thinking, yes, I've done all those. All of those I've done, yes, I'm in. It's the commandments that I have to keep. It's the commandments. That's what this man must have been thinking. All of these things I have kept from my youth. But Jesus points out one thing that he was lacking. And it involved his attachment to his possessions. And hence why I wanted to read this story because it reminded me of the story of Abraham and what he gave up because we know he had some attachments to his land. Maybe the family name and things like that. Jesus lists what he still lacked and told the man to sell all that he had and give to the poor and follow Jesus. Jesus tells this man to literally exchange his worldly possessions for heavenly and spiritual possessions. To exchange his life of being led by well to a life of being led by Jesus. The question we have to ask ourselves is why? Why did Jesus, why did he bring this out? Why did this man have such a hard time giving up his possessions? It seemed that Jesus knew this man's heart. If it was another man, Jesus might have had something else for them to do. But it all had one singular theme or common theme and that was Jesus understood the things that kept them from being totally devoted to God. Now, we might ask the question, you know, it's wealth. Wealth can be, you know, money. It can be material things and things like that. Why, why did this man have such a hard time giving up his possessions? And why are people just in the world so susceptible to getting wrapped up in materialism and wealth? But there's a lot of reasons for it. I mean, it's a lot of very basic reasons we can see at a small level, at a local level, all the way up to a federal level and a world level. Power, the sense of feeling of security. Maybe we believe it can make up for our shortcomings. You know, people who aren't happy, they're just constantly buying things where they need this, and then the, the newness wears off, and then they go over here. And then people feed themselves with things that can't fill the void that's in their life. And so sometimes, it's just, it's just a cycle. It's a never-ending cycle. People that have voids in their lives, and they just want to buy to, to, to make themselves feel full and whole, and the newness wears off, and then, you know, they have to go get another dose of the medicine, go buy something else, or do something else. Maybe it makes them feel like they are in control. 
The interesting thing is that it seems that Jesus set this man up intentionally. Not to belittle him. I mean, it was obviously to teach a lesson. Commandment keeping seemed to be easy for this man. And we know that the commandments are very important. God commands us to follow his commands. But giving up full control to be led by God, that's what was hard to swallow. Now this rich man's response spurred Jesus to say how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Because we know that this man had a difficult time swallowing what Jesus was asking him to do. Now, every time I read this, I always give a disclaimer. Because I think we can all agree that the purpose of the story is not saying that a wealthy person cannot be a godly person. It's not what it's saying. I'm not saying that a wealthy person needs to sell all that he or she has and give it to those who are less fortunate financially than they are. God is not asking us to become beggars on the street. But I think that the point of this story is that Jesus was showing us what to fo- uh, that to follow him, he and God the Father alone must be the center of our lives, security, protection, and power. Not ourselves, not our wealth, or our physical inheritance. So the question for us, is God so at the center of our world? Is he so at the center of our personal lives that we would be able to give everything up for him? I don't anticipate God coming to us in a dream and telling us to leave our households, to leave our jobs. But is your commitment to God so strong and so firm and so set on him that you would be able to do it And willing to do it. Because it seems that this man was not. In comparison to Abraham. And so as we come within a week of Pentecost. And we are nearing the end of our 50 day count. Which has been probably one of the most unique 50 day Pentecost counts we've ever experienced. Hopefully let's uh, let's not do that again next year. How about that? Uh, because of Passover and everything, but it all worked out. God did provide, and you know we can look for the we can look for the lessons that God can teach us through this time. Because there's lessons that we can learn from this uh, in in many different ways. But as we come to the end of our 50 day count, seven days short so far, let us remember the journey that we are on and where we came from. As we read today, Abraham was called to leave his native land and the family to where God would lead him to. We also were called to leave our current life. You know, not our family per se, not our jobs per se, or the land that we live on. But we were called to leave the lifestyles that we led before we were called by God. The ways of thinking, our attitudes. And let God lead us in that journey to the place where his name will be, which is the kingdom of God, where his name will be the center of all the world. And 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9-10, kind of a wonderful thing that Peter tells us. He says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that's what God has called us out of. 
the darkness of this world. Who once were not a people, but now are. Uh, who once were not a people, but now, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. There's one thing I want us to consider today, that is what Abraham gave up to follow God. He did so to migrate through a land, and we know that later, this land in which Abraham was initially a foreigner to, that it would be a land that we have come to know as the promised land. He was a foreigner in this land. He didn't have so much to claim even a foot in it, but his descendants would. But the scriptures read, as we just read earlier, in Hebrews 11, verses 8 and 10, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And went out not knowing where he was going, but by faith he dwelt in the land of promise in a foreign country, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That land that he wandered all around would be the land that his descendants would inherit. And we know is the center of the soon coming kingdom of God. But just like Abraham... Just like he followed God to a new land. So we, so are we, and we just like Abraham are wandering on this earth. That's this, the land that we have is this earth. We're wandering around on this earth. And it's interesting because we're waiting on our inheritance as well. You know, as Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But right now we're just journeying on this earth as foreigners. Right? As citizens of a different land that will be coming here and we will inherit this earth and God's kingdom along with all of God's children. But while we are journeying, while we are walking with God to this new land that he's called us to, we must remember that God is accompanying us. And all the stories we read about Abraham, we read about his faith, but what we see is, is the faithfulness of God, like I mentioned at the very beginning. We just must make sure that we continue to follow Him.